All too often we're told that film is a visual medium, but to say that is to miss half the picture. The other half, as George Lucas famously said, it is sound. And while Three Days of the Condor generates considerable suspense through its pictures, I want to focus how its director, Sidney Pollock, used sound in its opening sequence. Adapted by Lorenzo Semple Jr. and David Rayfield from James Grady's extremely slim novel, the film stars Robert Redford as Joseph Turner, a CIA codebreaker who is forced to go on the run when his colleagues at the office where he works are gunned down. But before that inciting incident, everything is beguilingly calm. Then, as Turner arrives for work on a Solex pushbike, things begin to stir. Across the street, in an inconspicuously parked car, a man has taken out a list of names and checking Turner against his identifying photograph, crosses his name off the list. So far, there is nothing special about the use of sound to really warrant any mention. As Turner and his colleagues then go about their work in the office, the man out in the street gets out of his car and from a payphone summons a second man. It's the sort of thing Alfred Hitchcock did wonderfully, gently winding the audience like a clock, tightening the pieces incrementally as Hitchcock counts down the seconds to the climactic moment. By now, we know that something definitely is up, because even though it is raining, the second man has not only closed his umbrella, but dumped it in a trash can. But again, nothing particularly special about the use of sound catches our attention. Back in the office, Turner takes the lunch orders from his colleagues and, because it is still raining, slips out the back entrance of the building to save himself from getting soaked. Once he's gone, the mailman arrives. Only he's not alone. With him are two other men, and instead of pulling envelopes from his pouch, he takes out a submachine gun and shoots dead the receptionist and the security guard. The slaughter continues as the three men sweep through the building, shooting and killing the remainder of the staff. And that is where the sound takes effect. The workers do not hear the gunshots because an enormous printer is noisily spewing readouts of the books they are scanning for any encrypted codes. Now, realistically, you would expect the staff to hear the gunshots. But, under the hand of sound editor Joseph von Stroheim, yes, the son of Eric, Three Days of the Condor is able to render believable what appears to be a contrivance. The use of sound here works in several ways. Firstly, because it is so loud, and because the killers are using silencers on their guns, the printing drowns out the sounds of the shots being fired. But, if that were the only reason why the sound worked, it wouldn't really be working. No, the real reason why it works is because the sound of the printer is so sustained, its rhythm is all but hypnotic, and thus it serves as a counterpoint to what we're seeing on screen. Visual repetition in real life is rare, but the sounds we hear operate in an entirely different fashion. Be it the drip 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 of a tap, the sounds of a dishwasher, tumble dryer or lawnmower, they have rhythms that our ear can adjust to and practically tune out. But in film, when such sounds are presented, the sound designer can audio focus. In other words, augment that particular sound and relegate others to the background. But the biggest reason why the sound works here is because the sound of the printer was introduced as soon as the film began, and so the noise it makes is native to the events. Would you move from the window, please? Pardon? Would you move from the window, please? Pardon? 
screen. I know. And then, just as the killer pulls the trigger to kill the final victim, editors Frederick Steinkamp and Don Judice cut to a close-up of the printer. Now superficially, it sounds clever, the associative thuds meshing together. This is first-rate editing, and earned Steinkamp and Judice Academy Award nominations. But it is not clever for its own sake. It's effective because it is sad. The cliché would have been to cut the victim, seeing the life drain from her eyes. But no, by cutting to the printer, the film is saying that despite the carnage, the faceless, impersonal machinery of the CIA carries on. Not having missed a beat, it will continue, indifferent to what has just happened. Which is part of the overall theme of the film. Power will maintain its status at all costs. Even if it means destroying an individual. Which was why Grady had written his novel in the first place. Like so many of his generation, he had been deeply disillusioned by the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X, the corruption of the Nixon administration, and not to mention the CIA's involvement in the coup d'etats in Greece, Syria, Iraq, and Chile. I think what happened was we became aware that there were forces that were not in the daily news. And I think the awareness of that, which was really nascent, really small at the time, captured my imagination and I was just so swept away by these, this what is going on out there in the unknown world that is affecting every citizen like me. Curiously enough, however, despite their liberal politics, that was not the initial motivation for the film's director, or its star, to get involved in the project. Here is Sidney Pollock. I think it began with Bob and I wanting to have some fun. That's really what it was. We kept saying, why are we always grappling with these horrendous themes and all this heavy weight stuff? Let's just go out and shoot a movie that's fun. It's contemporary. Let's do this. That was when it was kind of frivolous James Bond romp. And then, as is our want, once we sat down and started to work with it and really pull the scenes apart, I think it transformed itself into to, to something else. Um, Somehow Condor exceeded itself. But, no matter how clever von Stroheim's sound design, it was not without precedent, and we can go back as far as the early days of sound cinema to hear its possible inspiration. Fritz Lang had already established himself as a director of the highest order, with such masterpieces as Die Nibelungen and Metropolis, before transitioning effortlessly to the sound era with another masterpiece, M. In 1933, he made The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, the second in his series of The Criminal Mastermind. That film opens with the police detective breaking into a printing warehouse operated by a villainous gang. As the detective hides from the gang and as the gang become aware of his presence, the deafening and nauseating rhythm of the printing press heightens the tension. Alfred Hitchcock copied Lang's idea for a superb sequence in his 1940 espionage thriller Foreign Correspondent. Joan McRae plays Johnny Jones, an American reporter investigating a network of Nazi spies that is spanned out across Europe. A Dutch diplomat has been assassinated, but Jones is convinced it was his double, and that the real diplomat has been kidnapped for interrogation. 
Jones tracks the spies to a windmill in rural Holland. And there, sound editor Frank Marr weaves a brilliant mix between the wind and the churning of the mill. Now back to how the massacre ended in Three Days of the Condor. As I said, when the last victim was shot, editor David Judice cuts sharply to the printing machine. While not exactly the same thing, something similar happens in the opening sequence to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, where Leon Kowalski is subjected to the Voigtkampf test. Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about your mother. Your mother? Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother. The impact of the bullets hurtle his victim back through the partition and up against the desk in the adjoining office. Editor Terry Rawlings then smash cuts to an enormous vista of sprawling, rain-soaked Los Angeles. I'm not saying it was the first to do so, but one highly influential film showed how effective cutting sharply into the next scene could be, and that was Lawrence of Arabia. Just witness the way editor Anne V. Coates cuts from Lawrence blowing out the match to the rising sun in the desert. So much so that most of the films that do the same thing seem to take their cue from David Lean's masterpiece. But it could be argued that Lean himself was taking his cue from Federico Fellini, who, two years previously in 1960, had done something similar. La Dolce Vita begins with the arresting sight of a helicopter carrying a statue of Jesus Christ across the city of Rome. The images begin amongst the ancient ruins, before gradually approaching modernity, and then eventually circling, appropriately enough, above the Vatican City. It invokes the second coming of Christ, and just as soon as that idea has been established, the film cuts from the sacred to the profane, and we abruptly find ourselves in a nightclub as masked performers begin a flamboyant floor show. All of which goes to show that while we can sometimes trace the lineage of a filmmaker's inspiration, it is only the good filmmakers who adapt the original and bend it to their own means. And it is the boring ones who mindlessly repeat what we've already seen and heard. Boy, what is it with you people? You think not getting caught in a lie is the same thing as telling the truth? No. It's simple economics. Today it's oil, right? In 10 or 15 years, food, plutonium, and maybe even sooner. Now what do you think the people are going to want us to do then? Three Days of the Condor was released in 1975, when the Watergate investigation was reaching its climax. And while it may not be on par with other conspiracy thrillers such as The Conversation and The Parallax View, Condor is nonetheless an important addition to the genre that flourished during the first half of that decade.